Morning. Good to see you all. Uh, it's Pentecost. Did you wake up just fired up today? I did. Uh, you know, Pentecost, it's, um, it doesn't carry the same kind of like celebratory ah, that, uh, that Easter does for us. I love Easter. I think we live in the reality of Easter every day. And uh, I think the crucifixion and the burial and the resurrection were moments in time that carry eternal implications for sure. But y'all, like we're, we're the community of the resurrected and, and Pentecost is the day that we get access to the divine exhale. You know what I'm saying? It's like the most powerful power in the cosmos that resides within us and actually animates our lives to be about restoration on the planet. And, um, <laughs> okay. All right, let's start again. Hold on. <laughs> uh, but no, y'all, like, I, I get to go um, into some bizarre parts of our world. And, and the fact of the matter is a, re- a restorative revolution is underway. It's happening. And, uh, and women and men who understand what it means to decrease so that Christ increases in them, they're at the front lines of it. And these are people who are in touch with Pentecost. We see this as our day where we came alive to a story that's not about us. It's about a God who is actively making all things new. And it's not a, a story for once upon a time, some 2,000 years ago, where some wily ragtag you know, women and men were sitting on the steps of an old city and the spirit came down. No, we're, a, we're an extension of that ancient communi- uh, community. And, uh, and we get to participate in the divine exhale. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, so... So get a little bit more fired up than you are, okay? Uh, we're in the end of a series here on the Lord's Prayer, obviously. And, um, and I get to bring in, I'm like the Mariano Rivera of, um, of this series. I get to be the closer. Uh, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, talk to a Boston Red Sox fan and I'll tell you what I'm, what I'm talking about. But um, we've got this prayer and, and uh, the, the fact of the matter is, and even as I was studying in preparation for the prayer itself, uh, I, I, like I got into the weeds so far that I forgot that there was this community of people who followed Jesus and observed him do something that resembled prayer. Like they watched Jesus get away and Jesus would get away. And, and when he was away in this moment of, uh, of contemplative silence, it seemed as though Jesus would get in touch with the spirit uh, of God and that, that, that spirit would say stuff to Jesus or Jesus would feel compelled to act in a particular kind of way. And then Jesus would respond out of that contemplative silence in a lived expression of what he heard there. And every time Jesus did that, broken things got fixed and things changed, you know? So if I'm a part of that community of people following a Jesus who does that thing and then this stuff happens, I'm gonna probably have the question, can you teach me to pray too? Because like, there's a connection between a Jesus who prays and a Jesus who's restoratively at work in the world, right? And so it's not just Jesus doing this stuff out of like some kind of elevated moral compass or because God, Jesus thought it was a good idea. Something was happening in this moment of prayer that, that informed a life expression of prayerfulness that fixed broken things in the world. 
So the, the disciples said, Jesus, can you teach us to pray? And Jesus responds by saying, yeah, sure. Um, but it's not about words. Now we're going to talk about words here because there's a bit of a script given to us. But Jesus doesn't want us to just get this into our brains as, as like some kind of rote thing that we recite over and over. And don't allow this thing to master us and inform our everyday life. Yeah, I'll teach you how to pray, Jesus says, but it's not about words. Prayer is a posture, right? And throughout this series, I think we've been exploring prayer as a posture. It's not just this moment of solitude or a communal moment of piety. It's about how we show up on the planet. And so Jesus says, yeah, when you, when you pray, first and foremost, recognize that God is near and holy, not a, a distant enforcer. When, when you pray... Lament the, the fact that things are not yet what they will be. Long for a better future, are more restored tomorrow. Um, give us this day our daily bread. It, when you pray, declare your dependence and your mortality. Recognize how small we are in, in relationship to a great big God and a great big universe. Right? And then it goes, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, which is a really, really long way of just declaring, hey, I, I, like, I'm polluted by sin. I wake up every day and, and find myself more interested in the things that benefit me than the things that benefit you. And that interrupts our relationship and that interrupts this relationship and it disintegrates myself and it actually damages creation. Right? And so on a daily basis, live this prayer recognizing that I am polluted by sin and I personally and we together need to confess that we are polluted by sin and we need something to take care of it. Right? And then it goes on, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Everybody see that the Pope actually did a thing on that uh, recently and said, actually, the way that this plays out, it seems as though God is the one who leads us into temptation. And the Pope's like, I don't think God leads us into temptation. So this is less a God stop leading us into temptation, but it is a God protect us from the deceiver who wants to keep on tricking us into believing that this story is about us. Uh, protect us from the deceiver who wants to do nothing but interrupt relationships. That wants us to do nothing but abuse and dominate and control. Deliver us from the deceiver because the deceiver uh, in 1 Peter, we learn that the deceiver is like an angry lion that's roaring. That's an old lion that knows he's defeated. So the deceiver is doing everything the deceiver can do to mess with us. So protect us, God, because that's real, right? And then, uh, and then we get to this conclusion. And in the conclusion, it's like this bold declarative, doxological explosion of worship. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> You're like, say that sentence again. <laughs> and uh, I said, it's a bold, declarative, doxological explosion of worship. And it's the focus of our time together this morning. For thine, for yours, for God's is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And amen. Okay. Let's start with the fact that this particular moment in the prayer is not in the Bible. Did you know that? Matthew 6, Luke 11, not there. Any of the original manuscripts, not there either. The earliest place that this conclusion is actually included is in a, a document called the Didac, and it's, a, it's like a mid-century, 50 A.D., document that laid out the, litur the, the liturgy for the family. 
Like this is, this is our rule of life. When we gather together, these are the things that we do. This is the ethic by which we live with one another. Which means that if it's in the didact at like 50 AD, which is like some 20 years after Jesus, that would indicate that this was a part of the oral history of the original movement. And that every time we pray this prayer and conclude it this way, we're actually declaring that we are a part of an ancient restorative community, a movement that is oriented around Jesus, by Jesus, for Jesus, because of Jesus. Right? And so it's this cool participation in this ancient family who is actively joining God and making all things new. So um, not in the Bible, and so I can't say with certainty that Jesus said this, but I certainly can say with certainty that he lived this. And we'll talk about that in a second. But before we do, I want us to think about these concepts of kingdom, power, and glory. I'm not sure how often we use those words. I don't think I use those words on a daily basis. Um, I don't talk about kingdoms really. We live in like a democracy. I mean, kingdoms are in like Saudi Arabia and England and stuff. You know, so I don't, it's, it's a, a bit of a foreign concept to me. Um, power, I don't talk about it, but I sure crave it. I want it. I spend my life pursuing it, trying to accumulate it and then protecting it at usually at high cost to you. Glory, I don't use the word glory. But I am concerned about fame, reputation, image, platform, you know, authority. And, and so from a, from a kingdom perspective, if you just think about what a kingdom is, a kingdom is a space where a king or queen exercises his or her rule or authority. It's a sphere of influence. And the fact of the matter is that we build our kingdoms all of the time, whether it's your family or your physical property or my vocation or our platform, whatever it is, we are actively involved in the work of building our kingdoms. And at times when those kingdoms are threatened, we respond with vehement, sometimes murderous intention, which leads me to power. Power is how kingdoms emerge, grow, and are sustained. And so in, in my, in the kingdom or the kingdoms that I'm building, I establish a rule or a rhythm of life. It's a, a politic. And then I, I wield that politic to dominate, to win, to subjugate, to control. So I actually am pretty familiar with both kingdom and power. And then glory. Glory is just the fame that's attached to the king or queen within their sphere of influence. And I, I mean, if you're anything like me, I, I, I revel in success and victory and the knowledge that I'm the king of my kingdom. You know, so I, I actually think about and work out of this paradigm of kingdom, power, and glory on a day-to-day -day basis, if not a moment-by-moment -moment basis. But even in the way that I talked about them right there, it seems to be a twisted echo of the original intent. Kingdom, power, and glory were never supposed to be about me, for me. There's a bigger story going on here. And so I want to go to the very beginning because that's what I always do when we're together. I like to take us from the garden to the new city because there's this big story that we're a part of. In the garden, we discover a God who created not out of deficit, but out of desire. God begins to speak creation into being as Genesis chapter 1 goes, creates the pinnacle of humanity as Genesis chapter 2 tells the story. God gets on God's hands and knees, fashions humanity out of dirt, <sighs> and then breathes, literally exhales into the nostrils of humanity and wakes us up. So that was the first time that the divine exhale broke into creation. 
When the divine exhale animated us to life, we danced to the rhythm of God's heartbeat. It was beautiful. It was everything that it was supposed to be. It was as though God's desires were our desires. And then God gave us the authority to do things like co-create and to steward and to name stuff and to like bring things into being. So being, being marked in the divine image doesn't just mean that like, hey, we have some kind of royal lineage. No, we actually do what kings and queens do. We co-create, we steward, um, we, we make new things. And you know, like, like I'm saying, so, so like we, this is how it was. And it was like that for 31 verses. It was awesome. You know, and then what's the only way that something that good can get interrupted? Well, yeah, but when the deceiver... The deceiver didn't necessarily invite us to sin. The deceiver just asked a question. Did God really say you can't eat from that thing? All right, so the deceiver knows that the only way I can interrupt this beautiful dance is by somehow deceiving one of the entities to believe that the other is more tragic than they actually are. Did God really say you can't eat from that? Or if you do, you're going to you're going to die. God never said that you're going to die if you eat from this thing, you know? So it's like all of a sudden the deceiver is making God more tragic. God is no longer near and present. God is now holding out on us. God's a bit distant, a bit distant. Maybe God's a, a bit of a dictator. And so we, we're deceived into believing that God is actually a distant dictator rather than an intimate good God. And so what we did is we reached for the fruit of power. And in that moment, we declared our independence, I no longer want to be about, now God didn't use the word kingdom. God used the word creation and called it really good. I don't want to be about that in your way. I'm no longer comfortable not being the author and the main character. I want both of those roles. So I'm declaring independence from you and your kingdom. And quite literally, the moment we did that, all hell broke loose. And we spent years and years toiling in our independence, trying to dupe ourselves into believing that our fantasy for independence was better than God's dream for all of us. Things got so crazy. Check this out. If you got your Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 8. Things got so crazy that the people, they get desperate. And in their desperation, rather than returning to the one who exhaled divine breath and brought them to life, they looked to the prophet at the time, his name was Samuel. And here's what they, here's what they said um, in, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we'll start at verse 4. All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel, that's the big prophet, at Ramah and said to him, behold, you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And so Samuel went to God and God said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they had done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So they're desperate, toiling in their independence. They cry out to the prophet who has the direct connection to God and says, give us a king in our image. Samuel's broken by it because he's like, we got a good king, don't you know? 
And God's like, no, give them what they want. And if you read on then verses 10 and following, you'll actually recognize that God is saying, I'll I'll let you have your king, but understand that your king will be a tyrant. And the people responded at the end saying, good, we'll take a tyrant king over a God that we can't control. We'll take a tyrant king over a God that we can't control. And so then as we began to build our kingdoms out under the leadership of a king who looked like us, not the divine, society literally degenerated. If you read the book of Amos, which I would urge you to do because it's not only prophetic to back then, it's unbelievably prophetic to today. Because in the book of Amos, the prophet begins to describe what happens when we build our own kingdoms. Chapter by chapter, Amos says, when we're building our own kingdoms, we exploit people for profit. When we build our own kingdoms, we kill our sisters and brothers to enlarge and protect our borders. When we're consumed with building our own kingdoms, we will literally sell or enslave human beings for personal gain. When we live out our commitment to our personal kingdom building, violence becomes our native tongue. If you don't have some semblance of goosebumps or at least mild irritation, you're not paying attention to the world we live in. It's unbelievably prophetic in the way that it names the reality of this place that we find ourselves, not only geographically, but in time. So as we built our kingdom, society begins to degenerate. The prophets like Amos are saying, do you see this is going on? Do you see that you're not only perpetuating this willingly, but you're complicit in it as well? Your national or your people's or your tribe's personal kingdom building, it's interrupting everything. It's degenerating it. And so this group of people is like, oh, I think you're right. I think you're right. So they cry out to God at last to be the good king. So it took literally years and years and years of independence and independent kingdom building for us to come to our senses. Then we cry out to God for God to be a good king. And through the prophet Isaiah in particular, God reminds the people, I have always been holy and near. You're the ones who believe that I'm a distant dictator. And through Isaiah, Isaiah begins to paint a picture of a God who's going to bring a kingdom And it's going to begin to repair what we shattered in that original reach for independence. Isaiah begins to describe the kingdom of God like this. Uh, The kingdom will be marked by liberation from oppression. Wrong things being made right. Broken things like identities and relationships and systems being fixed. There's going to be an equitable experience of human flourishing. There's going to be a distribution of wealth so that I love Isaiah and Micah says this as well, that the kingdom of God will look like women and men beating their weapons into gardening tools and then sitting in the shade of their own fig trees without fear. What a beautiful picture of God's kingdom come. A little bit different than the world that I think we currently live in uh, at the moment. The kingdom of God, when it comes in, we're going to experience in a dynamic way the power and the presence of God. And people are like, oh, that sounds incredible. Bring it here tomorrow. And 800 years later, there's this woman named Elizabeth. And Elizabeth struggled through the 
um, through the darkness and the confusion of infertility. She was at her wit's end. She's married to a guy named Zechariah, and Zechariah was a priest, and he was doing his priestly duties. And in the midst of this priestly moment, God, whose presence dwelt in a unique way behind a big, huge curtain, encountered Zechariah and said, you'll be infertile no more. Life is coming up inside of your wife. Elizabeth was pregnant with uh, a, a baby boy, and his name was to be John. And at the same time, this is just crazy, she has a cousin who's an impoverished teenager from the Galilee in a, in a place called Nazareth. And, and, um, and she has this encounter with the divine and understands in this kind of weird vision experience, this weird encounter, that God's kingdom is actually going to break in in a way unlike anybody ever could have anticipated in the embryonic form of a human baby. The kingdom of God was going to emerge in her and then through her into the world. And so, um, I don't know if you've spent much time in Luke chapter one, but there's this song that she sings, which I just think is awesome. That the most impossible thing in the cosmos has just been declared to a, an impoverished teenager and she responds with song. Listen to this and tell me what you think about it. Luke chapter one, um, it, it's later called the Magnificat and I'm gonna pick it up uh, at about ha the halfway mark. She sings, and God's mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. I wish Allison were up here with me right now. We could, we could sing this out together. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in, thoughts of their, in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. God has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. What is this? This is a kingdom anthem. Somehow this impoverished teenage girl recognizes that God's kingdom that was described by the prophet Isaiah, it is now at hand. It's going to come to life in her and through her. Now, go to Matthew chapter 3. In Matthew chapter 3, these two boys are on the planet now, maybe in their 20-somethings. And... Uh, John is now called, uh, known as John the Baptizer. And um, in Matthew chapter three, um, his message was to repent. That is turn away for the kingdom of God is at hand. What do you think he's inviting people to repent from? Not just sin, but our fierce commitment to our own kingdoms. Your life is saturated with the, like the pursuit of your own kingdom. Turn around for the, a better kingdom. A better kingdom is at hand. So that was his message. And he said things like, I'm here to make straight the path for the king. He understood that he was there to make sure that the roads were straightened up a little bit so that when the king came in, he would not be impeded in any way. He recognized that the king who he was before, that he was paving the way for, is a king who would usher in his kingdom, not through the abuse of power and the forms of violence and militarism and occupation and subjugation and domination, but rather this king would usher in his kingdom through the release of power in the form of downward mobility and sacrifice and generosity and hospitality and creativity and love. And then there's this moment when Jesus is walking along the banks of the Jordan and John the baptizer, who is crystal clear on this stuff, 
points and he says, this is the one I'm talking about. This is the guy. And in one of the versions, he says, behold, the lamb of God who's here to take away the sins of the world. Crystal clear on who Jesus was. In Luke chapter three, if you look at the story, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist. And in that moment, an amazing thing happened. And I hope it happens on the 23rd as well. The heavens opened up and there was a voice from the heavens that said, behold, this is my beloved son, which I think is fascinating, by the way, because Jesus was declared beloved in that moment before he had done anything. Which means that we don't have to reach for our belovedness we already got it. Jesus is declared beloved in that moment. And then in Luke chapter four, Jesus is led by the spirit, the divine exhale into the wilderness for a time of prayerful preparation and reflection. I need to understand in the wilderness what it means to live as the beloved on this planet. Right, so there's 40 days in the wilderness where Jesus is being tended to by the divine exhale, the spirit. And then the spirit compels Jesus, continuing on in Luke chapter four, back to his hometown, the place where his identity has been shaped and formed, where he was like a kid, like our kids at Antioch, kids just simply growing up within the context of the community. They they knew him as Jesus, son of Joseph, the carpenter guy, right? And so Jesus shows up after having this really unique experience, goes to the synagogue because that's what you do as a God-fearing Jew, right? They, they give him the Isaiah scroll, which is the one that actually talks about the kingdom of God, right? And then he rolls it open to Isaiah chapter 61, where it says things like this, when the Messiah is here, when the kingdom of God is at hand, mute people will speak, lame people will walk, deaf people will hear, hungry people will have food, right? It's a messianic prophecy. Then Jesus rolls the scrolls up, hands him to the attendant and sits down and all eyes in the synagogue are on him. And Jesus says, today, in your hearing, this scripture has been fulfilled. And, okay, quick aside. If I ever came here and read Messianic prophecy and then claimed it, you'd be like, this man is insane, right? You wouldn't be awestruck. You would be disturbed, I hope right? When Jesus said, in your hearing, this messianic prophecy is fulfilled, the people were awestruck. Could it be? No way. Yes. They leaned in. They wanted that to be true so bad. But then Jesus, for whatever reason, because I think he was an Enneagram 8 who liked to disrupt stuff, he goes, um, uh, he goes, you know, um, this restorative movement, this kingdom of God thing, you know, in, in our own story, we've seen it uh, play out in some unique ways. Like there was this one time when there was a famine and, um, and when God showed up, God didn't show up to the bloodline. God showed up outside of the bloodline. Or, you know, there was this time when, um, when the kingdom of God, sh- like there were all these lepers, people were getting sick all of the time, right? And when the kingdom of God showed up and restored someone's health, it wasn't within the bloodline, it was outside the bloodline. So what Jesus is saying here is the Messiah is here, the kingdom of God is at hand and it extends so far beyond us to include all of them. And so it wasn't the reception of the messianic prophecy that got them all hot and bothered. It was the fact that he said that this kingdom of God is not just for you. It's for all of us. And you know what they did? 
The kingdom that is organized religion spoke their native tongue. And it is not good news. Because the native tongue of kingdoms that do not reflect the kingdom of God is violence. Ten times out of ten. And when he dared to believe that the kingdom of God is about more than for us, they took him by the nape of his neck and they walked him out to the precipice just out there, outside their city and they, they prepared to throw him off. Amazing, right? If you look at Matthew chapter 10, um, and then he goes in the end of Luke chapter 4, but then Jesus walked right through them. Um, I have, how that, I would love to have, uh, I'd love to see that. Um, and then he turns and walks and they let him go. Matthew chapter 10, Jesus goes to his, uh, he's still in his home county uh, or community. He begins to create uh, a community around him of people who want to learn what it means to live this kind of kingdom life marked by liberation and restoration, reconciliation, peace, joy, this kind of stuff. It's good news. Um, he, he builds this community. And then in Matthew chapter 10, he gives them power and authority, very similar to what was happening in the garden. He gives them power and authority and says, go be about my kingdom. Be about healing and liberation and justice and equity and healing. Go be about those things. I'm giving you the power and authority to do that. Go and live the story of a better kind of kingdom. And when people ask, tell them this, the kingdom of God is at hand. So they did that. While they're doing that, John the baptizer, remember, who once upon a time was crystal clear, John the baptizer is now in chains in Herod's dungeons because kingdoms, old crotchety kingdoms, when new kingdoms are emerging, they get threatened. And so Herod, who is the head of a mini-me kingdom, says, your kingdom is surging. The only way I know to snuff this out is to put you in prison. So that's where John the Baptist is. Now, remember, John the Baptist's cousin is the Messiah who said things like the kingdom of God is at hand and the kingdom of God is marked by liberation. So naturally, the question for John the baptizer is, if you're the Messiah and if the kingdom of God is at hand, why am I still in chains in Herod's dungeon? I mean, it would create a little bit of self-doubt, right? Is this who I thought he was? So John the Baptist somehow gets word to his community, sends them to Jesus and says, hey, John the Baptist, your cousin who's rotting in jail wants to know, are you who he thought you were? You want to know how Jesus answered? He doesn't say, yep, tell him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I am. Jesus says, go tell John the baptizer that mute people are speaking up, deaf people are hearing, lame people are walking, and hungry people are no longer plagued by hunger. The kingdom of God is at hand. Go tell him. He'll know what to do with that. Now, it didn't solve John the baptizer's circumstance. But you have to imagine that in that moment, John the baptizer said, probably said something like, ah, okay, good. I'm reinforced. For the, if my imprisonment increases God's fame, so be it. Right? Um, and so, anyway, this kingdom is breaking in. And it's good news and it's a better story. And as I mentioned, um, when kingdoms here, when, uh, when old kingdoms become threatened by newer kingdoms, they respond in their native tongue, which is violence. So in Jesus' time toward the end of his life, you've got the kingdoms of empire and you've got the kingdoms of religion. And they collided in their native tongue. Now go with me to Matthew chapter 26. 
Matthew chapter 26 um, is this moment in Gethsemane, which I've been there um, multiple times over the last decade. And every time I'm there, I'm struck again by how this is a place not just of like contemplative silence and, and, um, and anxiety and the things. This is a place where kingdoms collided. And in contemporary times, it's a place where kingdoms continue to collide. In this case, I, I want to think just really briefly, like when you listen to Jesus pray, like here, you, you, you get, I think, a picture of Jesus in his humanity, thinking about things like fear, pain, self-preservation. I've seen people crucified and I don't want that to happen. Right? So there's this whole, like, my sense of personal safety and, like, this thing that I think God might be up to, they collide in that moment. Like, you can hear this. Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, My soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. That's the collision a little bit, Right? Like, I'm not sure that this, is this good news? But then he goes on and he says, but not my will, but your will. I think that's Jesus kind of saying, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. The kingdom is going to come through acts of powerlessness and that powerlessness is going to increase God's fame on the planet. It's like we can hear the origins of this doxological explosion of worship. And then the, 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 the kingdoms of empire and religion, they convene in a mob and they're armed with swords and clubs and torches, right? Because violence is the native tongue of any kingdom that is not God's kingdom. So they show up ready to go to war. And I think this is fascinating. Luke chapter 22, watch this. Peter draws his sword, one of Jesus' followers, and strikes and cuts off the ear of a soldier. Now, um, I don't imagine he was going for like a, side, like a sideburn cut or like just an ear shot. Chances are very good he's going for the death blow, right? The soldier probably did one of these, cut his ear rather than took his neck. Jesus looks at Peter and he says, put your sword away because violence is not in the vocabulary of the kingdom of God. When Jesus told Peter to put his sword away, Jesus disarmed all of Christians. My kingdom will not come through subjugation and occupation and violence and militarism. It will not come through might. It will not be fueled by hatred. Revenge will not be the fuel behind the movement. Jesus says, put your sword away. This is not of my kingdom. And then Jesus demonstrates what is of his kingdom. He picks up the bro's ear and he puts it back on his head. <laughs> my kingdom will be marked by restoration, by healing, by uncommon relationships, by love of other neighbor and enemy a collision of kingdoms right here in Gethsemane. And then the kingdoms, they enact all of the violence that they possibly can because it's their native language. It's all they know how to do. And Jesus, in an act of powerlessness, absorbs the best or worst that they've got for the sake of our restoration. And on the cross, Jesus is crowned king of the cosmos. And then he went to the tomb, but then got back up, which means that our king is not dead.
Our king is alive and bringing the kingdom into play here and now, which leads us to this question, how? How is this kingdom coming? Well, today is Pentecost. Acts chapter one, Jesus is hanging out with this crew, an incomplete community of worshiping doubters. Let's not think that they had anything figured out. He's rallied with them and he says, hey, y'all, there's a day coming when you're gonna receive power not to dominate and to control and to win, but to be a part of this movement of restoration. You're gonna receive power when my spirit comes upon you and you're gonna be my witnesses. That is, you're gonna live, you're gonna live the story of a better kingdom and you're gonna narrate it too in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then in Acts chapter two, the day that we celebrate today, the divine exhale happens again and it floods into the life of the community. And again, we had access to the divine exhale. We had access to the power of God, again, not to control, dominate, and win, but to join God as as God is remaking the world. And so when we come to this conclusion of this prayer, we are doing so in an explosion of worship, declaring that God's, yours is the kingdom. This story is all about you. Yours is the power, and it's not going to be the power to crush. It's going to be the power to restore. And as we act in the, in the way, the powerless way of the cross, God's fame truly is going to increase throughout all creation. And so as we pray this prayer, we end with this. God, it's about you. It's for you. It's because of you. And we, we get to be a part of it. So we're going to move now into a moment of reflection and response to that. And as, this, as the music is played and sung, there's, um, there's stations all around the room. This is the Eucharist. This is the moment when we become fueled for this cross-shaped way of life, to, be, to become again a part of this restorative movement. As you come to the table during this first song, I want, to, I want you to um, maybe consider this thing that John the baptizer said in John chapter 3, verse 30, where people are looking at him and saying, whoa, your platform is decreasing because Jesus is getting bigger. And John the baptizer's response was, yes, I must decrease. He must increase. So as you come to this table, which is a table that declares restoration, if you were someone who wants to participate in the movement of restoration, pray that prayer, Jesus, that you would increase and that I would decrease. Between the songs, there's going to be a a moment of of prayer that's going to be happening on the screens and there's going to be prayers in the back that you can go to and um, and go to work uh, work with. Uh, And then then ultimately, um, we'll be remembered together as a family a restorative movement. Jesus, uh, thank you for your word, for the story. Thank you for teaching us to pray, not just these words, but thank you for giving us a way of life. And as we live that way of life, we're declaring a better story. We embrace the gift of your divine exhale. It animates our life into this restorative adventure. In Jesus' name, amen.